Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, December 3rd, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, reminding you again that as you consider your end-of-year giving, you should give a thought to Commentary, a nonprofit 501c3 that publishes Commentary Magazine, that produces the Commentary Podcast you are now listening to, and that produces also our daily website, Commentary is a 75-year-old institution that relies for its continued existence on the generosity of not only our subscribers, but also of people who are willing to help support our deficit. Um, And I would be very grateful if you would consider us as part of your annual giving. Uh, You can go to www.commentary.org slash donate to do so at your leisure. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So here's what we're noticing. We're noticing uh, that politicians are giving press conferences to announce that, uh, as in the case of uh, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, that there are five cases of the Omicron variant in New York state, a state uh, with 16 million people in it. I think Gavin Newsom has given a press conference there, you know, involving one person. And then there's uh, somebody in Michigan. Um, If this were the plague, one would understand why the need to go public with information about the existence of either a handful or a single patient, a deadly virulent uh, condition that could hit anybody at any time and kill them. But Abe, what have we noticed about Omicron thus far, not only in the United States, but everywhere on the planet that we are told there are cases? So far, there are no reported deaths. And, 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 and the overwhelming majority of the cases are quite mild. And uh, the evidence now seems to indicate, as is always the case with these things, that its existence is older than we had first been led to believe, that it was probably uh, manifesting itself sometime in mid-October, which would mean that we are now in December. And so it's like six weeks, and uh, and there there we are. There there are a couple of interesting developments in regard to this, Uh, one of which is that uh, it appears to elude natural immunity that that is the uh, according to the israelis um if you are this if you are a person who got covid but has not been vaccinated apparently you have no defenses against omicron however if you have been fully vaccinated or at least in the israeli case vaccinated and boosted by the third shot you are highly protected against it. So this now raises a new wrinkle in the, I would call the sort of mid, not anti-vaxxer position, but the sort of mid-vaccine um, skeptical position, which is why is everybody going crazy about insisting that we have a 100% vaccination rate? If you got COVID already, you have natural antibodies and they're better. 
naturally are better than vaccine antibodies. They're better and they're stronger and you're more powerful and you can, you're a superhero and you can fight them and you can do whatever you want. And so I think you're going to see uh, a case being made that, you know, to redouble or, or redouble efforts at, at vaccination. Uh, and uh, some people are going to start saying that what I just told you was a lie because the establishment is so uh, determined to force everybody to get vaccinated that they're now playing fast and loose with factoids about this in order to make their argument. And we're going to have another, there's another front going to open up here um, in, in this, in this preposterous culture war over the vaccine, which everybody should get, including if you, already had COVID. And if you don't do that, you're an idiot. And I'm going to tell you again, I really got to tell you, I think you're behind the curve on this one. I really do. (laughs) If you're, if you're reading the, the, the reports out of the people who are in the Biden administration's orbit, they're frustrated that they're relying so heavily on persuasion efforts to get people vaccinated, because that's not enough. You need to have universal masking in perpetuity, which is the legislation in front of Oregon's legislature right now, which is going to pass a forever mask mandate. You need to have social distancing in perpetuity. You need to have triggers to close schools in perpetuity. The idea that vaccinations will get us out of this is long defunct well, on this, also- in this particular side of the, of the uh, intellectual ledger, as it were. And, and this comes at a weird moment as well, both an, uh, both ironically for the anti-vaxxers who I agree, John, are going to double down on this. And also for what Noah's saying, because we have on the horizon, if our FDA could get their rears in gear and, 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 approve it, these these pills that we can take, which are in fact manufactured by drug companies, including some of the ones who make vaccines that offer basically 90 uh, percent of the people in the trial weren't hospitalized as well taking the pills if they take them within the first few days of getting any COVID symptoms. So this is something you can do at home. You don't have to check into the hospital like you did with the monoclonal antibody treatment. It's a it's a miraculous breakthrough that protects even the people who haven't gotten themselves vaccinated are likely to be helped by these medications as well. So, I mean, even the New York Times has been, you know, I think it's David Leonhardt today, his newsletter is like, look, people, it's it's not that bad. We really need to not panic. Don't panic. <laughs> But yeah, Noah's right. The administration. I wants- don't know what's going to convince people <laughs> at this point. I really don't. We we're now talking about. Remember when we were talking about a th- an immunity threshold based on vaccinations, and then it was children who need to get vaccinated, and now it's an indefinite amount of boosters, and all of this now prompted by a variant that, by all indications, according to the data, is by no means as serious as the, the interventions that we're talking about. Any amount of talking about vaccinations at this point is bargaining. It is a self deception. It's not getting us out of this. Uh, here's wait, another wait, 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 what's a, what's a self-deception? I'm not the sure. idea that any sort of arbitrary threshold of vaccination rates, children, population rates, booster three, four, five is going to get us out of this. There's no getting us out of this. I, I don't think we're, we're talking crew. about, get, I don't think we're talking about getting out of it here. I, I was literally just talking about treat, you know, about yeah. the question of the efficacy against Omicron. And we are, Israel is of course the, is, is of course the ultimate, the test case. Cause uh, it's the, you know, it's the Pfizer kind of Petri dish. And uh, they are now trying to collect nationwide information based on, you know, based on the 9 million people there uh, who are essentially a giant case study. And so if you actually are a serious person and you want to just make sure that either you don't get COVID or that, you know, you, you get mild symptoms of COVID, 
the evidence is gathering that a this is a this is a um, mild variant, though it may be very aggressive, which would be a good thing. In other words, it's a mild variant more aggressive than than Delta, in which case Delta is going to be swamped and overtaken by a less virulent version of COVID. Well, follow That's the logic there. Anthony Fauci just went on a tear about how irresponsible that theory is. How reckless that theory is to allow this variant to circulate and displace Delta as the dominant strain. I'm not even saying that. I'm saying it may be but happening. But it's relevant. It's, it's a good thing to say. What you're saying there makes perfect sense. It's something that I brought up literally on Monday on this podcast. Yeah. And there's a did. lot of resistance to that notion. And it's increasingly supported by people who are not consumed by a cultish devotion to mitigation strategies as a way of life, as a lifestyle that have nothing to do with mitigating this disease. You can tell my source of my frustration um, because this is not tethered to any sort of scientific rationale anymore. But here's what's worse. Um, I fear we're going to go through this with every variant, right? And there's going to be more variants. This This is what viruses do. And someone's going to get them under a microscope or however they do it and say, oh, this one looks like this. And we all have to meet about this. And the, and why would this ever stop? Right. Well, that is, and of course, we do have the example of the, of the seasonal or annual flu, each of which is a variant on a previous flu. And there is a new flu shot, right? Uh, and, and we don't have a total, you know, freak out uh, every year that there's a new flu shot. Um, oddly enough, people are, some people get it, some people don't, some people get the flu, some people don't, 10 or 15 or 20 or up to 60,000 people die a year from it, uh, maybe because they don't get the flu shot or maybe they're dying from it because, I mean, the flu shot is ineffectual against the flu that's there because it's a it's often an inoculation against a flu that's already passed. Nonetheless, we've learned to live with the flu in part because we never had any choice but to live with the flu. <laughs> the flu. And yeah, I mean, I am uh, astounded. So, you know, Biden uh, made this announcement yesterday of all the measures that they're going to take. And I think, again, we have to look at this, look at Kathy Hochul in New York making this announcement about the five cases and all this and say, Democratic politicians believe that their political futures are tied to looking like they are aggressively confronting COVID. Republican politicians believe almost the opposite, which is that they believe that their political fortunes are tied to the idea that we are not going to allow this virus to upend and destroy our lives. And we're either going to figure out a way to live with it or we are going to do whatever we can do to make sure that daily life is not unduly disrupted by it. And we have two incredibly divergent narratives about what to do about this disease. Meanwhile, the American people uh, we are at 83% of all eligible people in the United States having gotten at least one shot. 83%. The American people have spoken. This is not a 50-50 case. Americans have consented to vaccination. As the, That includes young children too, right? Yeah, that's in other like words. The entire population. Five, five to, yeah, five up, five up. Americans have consented to to getting themselves vaccinated, to mitigate the disease, prevent the spread, uh, you know, and protect themselves. That, that is the story that is missing from all of this hysteria because 
Democrats want to accuse Republicans of being irresponsible and Republicans want to accuse Democrats of being fascistic. And that is where where we are, that we have this overlay of the political culture war on something that the American people, it appears, have themselves already settled for themselves, which is, yeah, we're going to get vaccinated. That the only thing that Ron DeSantis and and uh, Biden agree on is that everybody should get vaccinated. It's just that what do you do while everybody's getting vaccinated? What do you do to deal with the fact that some people aren't getting vaccinated or whatever? That is where the divergence is. But we are not focusing on an actual naked display of American unity of purpose in confronting this pandemic. 80, when, when, when has 83% of Americans done anything or agreed to anything in the last you know, 20 years? But that's why I know his earlier point is important and his mention of Oregon in particular, because we, what I hear living in a blue state is constantly that, you know, it's Republicans who've politicized the pandemic. It's their fault. Like everything they've politicized everything by by spreading rumors about vaccination, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, there's a there's a another level of politicization going on with the mitigation stuff. And I think Noah's absolutely right. You We might see states deciding based on whether they lean left or right to to keep these regulations in perpetuity. And then then people who live there will have to vote with their feet or vote out of office the people who are putting these restrictions on. But I mean, if I if, if my city announced a permanent mask and social distancing mandate, I might seriously consider moving because that's insane. But there are people who who need that as a kind of security blanket. And that's a form of politicizing pandemic measures as well. We just don't hear it described as such, at least in most media outlets. I, I continue to wonder at a point at which, it, no, it's interesting to hear your, your tone because you, you, from the outset of the pandemic, you have said that the American people would not tolerate draconian measures of self, you know, of, 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 of social control. And clearly there are plenty of Amer- Americans who will tolerate rather extraordinarily high uh, examples of social control. It just depends on where they live and what their politics are. And I guess it, I guess it, it follows along an understandable ideological path that there is an ideological path between believing that you, that the government should somehow guide your life from cradle to grave and that the government has the authority to tell you to wear a mask everywhere you go or to control your children's behavior or to close schools at a moment's notice or to do whatever it wants to there that is logic it, it, it makes logical sense or absolutely it's, it doesn't even have to be that extreme um i think there's a sort of mindset where you just accept that the pragmatic thing is to let the expert voices sort of guide you, let those in charge make the decisions. Sure, they may not be perfect, but what do I know? And I don't want to die. You know, it doesn't have to it's it doesn't have to necessarily be this overt faith in government and and institutions of that nature. Well, I, OK, <laughs> so I, I, I and I think John, the tone of John's question suggests quite a bit of skepticism about the notion that the American people do not and will not accept these emergency measures, these emergency restrictions on your economic and social activity in perpetuity is, you know, it's not really well-founded because they are, right? Well, I mean, 
every election result that we've had so far is predicated on the idea that we're going to get out of this and this guy's going to get us out of this. In 2020, it was Joe Biden. He said, I'll get you out of it. I know how to do it. In fact, by July 4th, this thing's over. And that was what won in 2020. 2021, it was likely school closures. That's the consensus that the most animated uh, part of the electorate was motivated to go to the polls and vote in disproportionate numbers by their antipathy towards these mitigation measures, not their support of them. And I think that actually moved the needle a little bit. And you could go deeper into the you know, psychosocial you know, background to say, well, maybe the, the riots in 2020 were an expression of that sort of thing too. And I would argue that as well. But nevertheless, we have plenty of data and evidence to suggest that one side of the ledger is more animated by this than the other. Oh, no, no, I, I agree with you. I think you misunderstood me a little bit. I'm saying that I think there is a genuine, there is a, there is a genuine divide here. I don't think it's a 50-50 divide. Um, I think it's, you know, because in fact, you know, hard partisans make up, you know, 66% of the country, not 100% of the country. I'm saying that if you really want to understand why, why uh, there are going to be politicians who are going to go with this hawkishness, I think we can now say pretty fairly that this has now become an ideological, not even, by the way, a culture war thing or something like that, but but it's a it's a form of uh, it's an ideological badge that if you are if you come at government with a certain degree of skepticism, you don't have difficulty listening to your governor come out and say, "We're going to do this because da da da," and saying, "Oh please, you know, what are you kidding me?" But if you but if you really do commit to you know pajama boys world or you know the the world of the cartoon strip where uh first you get this when you're born and then you get this when you're 12 and then you get a free this and then you get that and then you get this benefit and then when you die life of linda you get medicare uh right life of linda um it it makes sense that you are you are placing your life your fate your future and your understanding of things in the hands of uh you know, in the hands of the technocratic elite. And therefore, when they say, look, at extreme caution, you should uh, mask indoors inside your own house. But they're going to do it. And then if you have a if you have a more libertarian bent, it's much easier to say, you know, I kind of pick and choose sometimes when I'm being told how to behave uh, by my government. The funny part is that when I was growing up, uh, liberals and leftists were much more um, anti-authoritarian than they are now, and uh, and now they've become kind of like cattle and sheep. That's they were. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to smoke. Don't tell me that I can't watch. You know erotica and read pornography you don't know what pornography is you're just a babbit like you know don't tell me what lyrics my kids can listen to on a record you're a fascist that was that was a very healthy part of american of the american left that has completely desiccated as far it's, as i can tell it's reversed i mean i've said it before but it's yeah. gone from uh the slogan was power to the people to power to the state well, and but this is where the, the COVID restrictions are interesting because they're the, the Biden administration 
keeps creating these points of friction when the federal government insists, as Biden did this week, he's extended the uh, the uh, mask mandate on transportation. Right. That means planes, trains, you know, any sort of travel within the country that's federally has federal oversight. You have to wear a mask on it. Now, maybe some people are like fine. I'm only on a plane for a few hours. But for people who are business travelers, for people who commute in, on these trains every day and have to wear masks, that might chafe down the line, but that's those federal restrictions, I think, are the ones just like with the vaccine mandate, which keeps getting you know, booted by the court. Those are the things where the real conflict happens and not just with lawsuits. That's where I think the animosity and the, and the politicization become much more extreme and the rhetoric certainly becomes more extreme. And there's no reason for him to do that. Like the, the question of whether he should even have the power to do that is what's not the courts are debating that. But citizens and I agree, citizens on the left in particular, like, but it's for our, it's for our safety. I mean, remember in the life of Linda, she's wearing a mask the whole time as an adult. So like, that's something notable. Like her life is masks forever. <laughs> I've talked about this before and it's <laughs> hard for people who, uh, like my colleagues <clears throat> who live in major blue dominated metropolises to really understand the extent to which the pandemic is an ant, largely academic notion outside of democratic, uh, quarters really is. Um, the only time I'm ever reminded that things aren't normal is when I send my kid to school. That's it. There are that's no masks out here. But that's that's a that's a that's a pretty big reminder. I mean, it's yeah. funny. No, it's a, it's, it's a reminder look, and it's a source wear- of frustration. And to the extent that it is my daily reminder, it's my daily reminder that there needs to be some correction here. Other than that, the pandemic is something you read about in dispatches from Blue America. But again, that's, a, that's, that's most a, of the country, John. Other than <laughs> no, but other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how is the show? I have the, Children the notion from here the is ages that we, two to eighteen. The point I'm attempting are, to make, and as I've let made me, before, let me, let me finish post. my point because Christine's saying, "Look, business travelers, you know, they may have to wear a mask a couple hours on a plane. It's like it chafes or something like that." Our kids are wearing masks eight hours a day. Yes, we're not wearing masks eight hours a day. They hate sometimes it outside, too. they, they hate, hate it. it. Yeah. They're sometimes they're eating wearing lunch outside. masks eight hours a day, and you know why? Because they don't have any political power, and it is a source of profound because frustration. they're not voters. I'm serious. They are not. They don't have any political power, and therefore they can. Now, I'm not saying they should. I'm not saying that you know the vote should drop to the age of eight so that people can vote against masking, but. They're all going to be anarchists by the time they're you're 18. Not, at this you're, not, you're not imposing masking on 75 million Americans under the age of 18 without consequence. Like there is, I mean, you are, there's no consequence to masking them. Therefore, they're masked. And everybody who speaks about it is speaking in their name one way or the other. It's like, I need to be, what if my kid gets a disease? Or how can you do this? It's creating all kinds of psychological deformities and problems. This is terrible. You people are we're going to be dealing with this for 20 years. But the actual people in this country who are imprisoned behind a mask are the least powerful. Right. It is Including- a false consensus, a false equilibrium. The assumption here on the part of people who do have settled into this and are OK with the status quo are are in communities of like minds that that actually support and endorse this kind of behavior and the social compact. And it's settled into a sort of just a stasis where people are happy and content with this and think it is sustainable. And it is not. 
Well, we're going to know. I think we're going to know, you know, all this, all these focus groups and data, people trying to collect and try to understand the result in, in the Virginia gubernatorial election are trying to make sense out of Democrats are like, we had no idea how bad the education issue was going to be for us. That is story after story, people doing focus groups, people doing polling, people trying to find out, you know, what people who voted for Trump, then voted for Biden, why they're flipping, all that, all that kind of stuff, right? But the word education covers a lot of ground. It can cover schools being closed. It can cover transgender bathrooms or these transgender policies, or it could cover you're making my kid live inside a mask and my kid is depressed and I am blaming you. And so if I'm right about that, and if that is a significant element of what people now refer to as the education issue, there are going to be very wild results in 2022 that are going to take in exactly those blue states, right? That Noah, you say, uh, I'm saying that there's a certain type of person who gives in to government because they're brainwashed in this way. But that's, there are a relatively small number of people, including in blue states, <clears throat> they, they control the high, the high, the high watermarks of blue states. But, um, I'm just saying, like, we could see if this really extends, if kids are in masks through June, through the end of this school year, when I was pretty sure that masking would be over after Christmas vacation, there could be a tsunami in these elections, the likes. We're going to see, like, a truck driver from somewhere or other winning a Senate seat, you know, the, like a version of the New Jersey, the guy knocking who knocked off John Sweeney, the most powerful person in the New Jersey State Senate. Some guy is going to take a flyer is going to, you know, like the Republican nominee in New York is going to win the is going to win the Senate seat away from Schumer or something like that. Like stuff can happen here that will that will fly totally under the radar. Because of because of the draconian nature of this, particularly if. What Abe has mentioned, which is that uh, Omicron is not fatal. Maybe it's going to turn incredibly fatal. It is not right now fatal, and it's been like six weeks. And I don't know, is that the way it works? It's like, no, no, it's not fatal. Now it's fatal. Boom. Now everyone's going to die from it. Shouldn't there be signs that it's a well, murderous uh, variant? It's been, it's been about a week since they said we have to wait two weeks, hasn't it? So we'll we'll right. we'll we'll see. Yeah, but very <laughs> shortly, what they're actually prepared to say if, in fact, this this turns out to be as mild as so many of the indications. Uh, but as you've to. said, this has been here for quite some time, most likely, and we haven't seen that. And if we do end up seeing that, as we might, then the perfectly rational response would be to endorse mitigation measures commensurate with the threat but we're endorsing mitigation measures commensurate with no threat. Right. And that's mitigation why wanna... measures aren't designed to address a threat. They're designed to address a psychological persuasion. They're also designed to address a, a conception of uh, political need, which is where I began. Kathy Hochul takes over from Cuomo. Cuomo resigns. Kathy Hochul, who is a, briefly a, a congressman, you know, gets this kind of ceremonial position as Lieutenant governor ends up as governor there's a race next year. It's a complicated race. She's uh, the attorney general, Tish James, is the person who knocked Cuomo off with her investigation into a sexual harassment 
Kathy Hochul wants to win election as governor. What does she have? What can she do to distinguish herself from Tish James and others? She can show leadership on COVID. If you are a Democrat in a blue state, what does leadership on COVID mean? Because you can't act like Ron DeSantis. That would make you evil. What you can do is be tough. Show your toughness. It's like being tough on crime when you're, you know, it's some version of being, it's so you want to show your toughness and your leadership. She, so we now have people who have a political incentive to be irrational and crazy in relation to Omicron. We're going to see this in Massachusetts. Massachusetts has now got an open governor's seat because uh, Charlie Baker decided not to run again. They're going to fall all over themselves to be the guy who, the person who's toughest on COVID because that's their understanding of how politics is working. I'm saying that the Democrats, because of their bubble and because of the media and all of this, are blind to something that is bubbling up that is not just Virginia. That is, we have had enough of you screwing with our lives without any evident positive success. Think about what it means. We haven't even really talked about this because it's too painful to think about. What does it mean that by that the year 2021 was more deadly than the year 2020 in relation to COVID? So it means either the narrative that Trump made COVID worse has to be surrendered because there's nothing politicians can do and the mitigation measures, maybe they work to save lives, but we don't actually know whether that's true. Uh, in fact, because we have no, we, we I, except for that ba Bangladesh study, we don't have any large longitudinal evidence to say that masking and social distancing and all this actually saved a lot of lives. But it, it does say uh, maybe politicians can't do anything about this. Maybe public health authorities had absolutely no positive effect on how this was going to go. Why are we still listening to them? But the but the narrative for that has been set by by those on the left, particularly in the media. The one I've I've seen over and over again is uh, to to this escape hatch that they've created for Biden and the fact that more have died under his watch and despite what he promised when he was campaigning is. The federal response, which was the most crucial, was bungled by Trump. He downplayed the virus. He he led to the deaths of all these people. And Biden has tried to do everything right. But it's Republican governors in states who have you know thwarted him at every turn. And so when we're looking at all the people who've died, that's actually Republicans fault, too. Like they, they have created for themselves this narrative. And, and it's not true because we know, you know, we've watched states like Florida, which have fewer mandates, certainly no mass mandates, have their spikes. And Abe has talked about this many times on the podcast. We don't really know, but they cannot admit ignorance because that would then they would be complicit in all of these experiments they've done on the American people for the last year and a half. But but let's even say it is true. I mean, I, I agree with you, Christine. It's not true. But let, let's say it is true. Um, you've that's factored in to being the president, right? You states have rights. Uh, that's not a surprise. That's not a surprise twist in your in your plan to in your plan to govern the country. If, if you if you say I'm going to shut down the virus, you didn't say, oh, well, I 
I thought every every uh, local leader and every say everyone was going to fall in line with everything I said. I mean that 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 that's that's doesn't. But that you laugh, work. you laugh. But I think that is what they thought because their technocratic expertise has given them such a, a, a surreal sense of their own power that when people actually push back against it and say, actually, we do have rights. And when courts say you can't do that, Joe Biden, in your administration, they're shocked. They're truly shocked. I mean, where where is the largest spike in the United States right now? It's in Michigan, Michigan, yeah. Michigan, which is a Democrat, which is a Stay with a Democratic governor who you remember last year ordered everyone not to buy seeds at Walmart. Oh, that, yeah, that was that was the winter of 2020. And in the winter of 2020, 2021, they experienced a surge, much like we have now before the, the you know, the saturation of vaccines. And the newly uh, sworn in Biden administration's response was to publicly pressure Gretchen Whitmer to lock the state down again. Lock it down. Right. Yeah, that was from the CDC. Anthony Fauci was doing, you know, his tap dance on cable news and behind the scenes, reportedly, the Biden administration in the in the Oval Office was expressing uh, the desire to see this state shut down. And Gretchen Whitmer said, no, never again. I mean, it's just interesting because the point about lockdowns or the point about, you know, putting on mask mandates or 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 ordering testing at the border or something like that is is itself more an expression of impotence than it is the exercise of power in some ways, which is it's like, okay, let's do this again because I don't know what else to do. Now, it's not impotence because, in fact, it is the exercise of emergency authority that is, you know, probably unconstitutional, you know, or, or, or some version of kind of extra constitutional. I mean, we're two years into this. Are we still in an emergency where you can you can assert emergency powers or are we in a new reality in which you have to conform your daily behavior and your daily politics to the constitution again because you know it's been almost two years and we can't simply be living under those strictures to take the analogy to a very graphic level it's impotence uh insofar as it's the effort to exercise virility and failing right well, I, you know, it's you just, can only I, you can only discover your impotence in a particular position. We always get racy on Fridays. That's yes, very know. racy, very racy. And you know what is it's not racy, but it is exciting. And that is the second conversation on Dan Sinor's Call Me Back podcast, his successor to his post corona podcast with Neil Ferguson, who is, yes, a Scottish American professor, historian, economic historian, biographer uh last week's which i told you about sort of uh, provided an overview of the nature of uh the connections between the 2020s and the 1970s and where they resonate and harmonize the second part of dan's call me back conversation with neil ferguson uh is about education and uh neil's role as part of one of the founders of this new university of Austin, which uh, you've heard about this um, experiment in creating an entirely new educational institution dedicated to the principles of free speech, free inquiry, and essentially uh, anti-wokeness, let's say, or, or refusal to allow wokeness to dominate the education of, of, um, 
of of students. Uh, he goes into the founding of the University of Austin, what he thinks is going to happen, and generally in in theoretical terms, why he believes that the 2020s are going to represent the moment at which the now 140-year-old American higher education model is going to crack wide open, how its desiccation, its... Um, degeneration and uh, the and, uh, entropy it's now in the period of entropy in which it is it is going to uh, split apart and and collapse too expensive uh, no no practical educational benefit being enjoyed by those who are spending colossal sums of money uh, to be educated but not getting it and uh, and and uh, and uh, it is a it is a system that is not going to survive all of the technological advances. And frankly, the um, uh, the American public's growing disgust with the over with with the elites embrace of anti-Americanism and wokeness and 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 and. Academic and educational idiocy. So that is the Call Me Back podcast from Dan Senor with Neil Ferguson. If you had already subscribed to Dan's post corona podcast, it will simply keep coming into your podcast feed. If not, search at Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get fine podcasts for Call Me Back and listen. If you, uh, that podcast, I think, drops tomorrow morning, Saturday. Uh, if you haven't listened to the one, the first part with Neil, you should do it today and then listen to that one at your leisure over the weekend. And thanks very much to Dan Sinor and the Call Me Back podcast for sponsoring the Commentary podcast. And we also owe a great thanks to our friend David Bonson of the Bonson Group for his sponsorship of the Commentary podcast. And we are delighted to be able to tell you that if you are searching for a uh, holiday present, a Christmas present for uh, stocking stuffer for your um, intellectually, philosophically minded relative or friend, uh, you should look at There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, David's new book uh, that is set up as a kind of daily devotional on the model of a daily devotional uh, devoted to 250 separate economic and philosophical topics uh, that connect uh, liberty, faith, uh, and human flourishing, uh, with quotes from great thinkers and uh, and a, a pithy explanation of 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 ideas that properly understood lead not only to the creation of a just and good society, but that will permit human flourishing as we believe it should be permitted. So that is, there's no free lunch. Two hundred and fifty economic truths from David Bonson of the Bonson Group. That's B-A-H-N-S-E-N if you need to search for it on Amazon. The Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Can can I just add one thing that we forgot to mention about Biden's uh, uh, press conference yesterday? The weird joke he made about Fauci when he said, someone said, well, he said, who's president Fauci, but all kidding aside, I sincerely mean it. It was weird. Like that's, it's not funny, first of all, but it's also what a weird thing to say. Well, Fauci is the it's only person true. in America older than, <laughs> older than he is. So he is Fauci, Fauci is older. Fauci is 81. Oh, I didn't that's know that. That's shocking. He's spry. Yeah. He's, yeah. That, he's in good shape. He's spry. Yeah. That's why he's, he's a spry. cover girl for InStyle magazine. <laughs> there you go. 
Oh, but um, it, also, it also highlights, you know, Biden's deficiency. Uh, can we talk about the other Biden deficiency, which is that he went into a whole thing about how he met Golda Meir and was served as a liaison during the Six Day War when, in fact, I don't Wrong know. War. He was in law. Wrong he was war. in law. He was in law school during the Six Day War. Golda Meir was not the Prime Minister of Israel, and in any case, he went there in 1973, before the Yom Kippur War, as a as a junior senator. And I think what happened is he had a photo op with her, and they had a 10 minute conversation. And over the last 50 years, he has turned this into his prophetic analysis of the terrible dangers of the coming settlement policy which is to say he's full of shit. Either he's full of shit or he makes up shit in his head. He's either knowingly lying or he is deranged and delusional and a fantasist. Um, and it's really great to know uh, what is it with these guys? What is it with the making stuff up? Like, it's not enough that he, you know, he's already, he was a senator and, you know, in power for 50 years and became vice president. Like, what has he got to make shit up for? They, he's done this his entire career, even yeah. when he first started out. And I think it's because they start to believe that they start to embellish slightly when they're on, you know, and they give these speeches over and over again, year after year, and they just start to embellish. And the embellishment probably does. I mean, the charitable explanation is he really does believe he did this stuff and he's mistaken because he's told the lie or, you know, or the little fib or the exaggeration so many times. And lots of politicians do this. But he, in fact, is notable for how frequent and how blatant uh, these these untruths have been over the course of his career. And nobody calls him on it in the media, obviously. I mean, the, the exaggerations of Trump were a daily beat for reporters at the mainstream outlets, but not so for Biden. You know what my tell is with him when he's about to go into his bullshit? But this is not this is not uh poli this is not sort of political or you know geopolitical stuff. It's personal stuff. It's when he starts telling a story about the homiletic wisdom that his father or his grandmother or his mother or his aunt or corn pop or 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 Shmulek down the block told him is he always it's always like, and they said to me, Joey. And Joey, comma, the thing is what you should say is everything that follows the word Joey is bullshit. He's making it up. No one talks like this. Joey, you got to be good to people no matter what color they are. Really? That's actually words that come out of somebody's mouth rather than, you know, being written by the by the hack screenwriter of the CBS after school special. I don't believe you. Um Anyway, that's my that's that that's that thing. But now let's talk about something serious, which is the Biden administration having to reckon with the very real possibility that for the second time in seven years, Russia is going to invade Ukraine. No, God help us if that actually is the case. I and mean, we okay. should we should. Pray the that it's not. I said possibility. <laughs> I said possibility. I didn't say right. Because likelihood. <clears throat> Because if they do, I mean, it's one thing to go into the Donbass and in Crimea and very Russian dominated areas, as offensive as that was to the that geopolitical was stability in 2014, geopolitical stability. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a crisis of a magnitude we haven't seen in a long time. And then where you're going now is in very Ukrainian places if they go anywhere we should explain this because you're you're it's your little, you're yeah, a little yeah, yeah. Too, okay well right? i so mean it's the, the Donbass is an area in 
in Ukraine that is um, on the border of majority on the Eastern border of Ukraine. Russia and is and is majority ethnic Russian majority and not Russian Russian speaking yeah has Russian affinities right. similar yeah. with Crimea um, right which doesn't mean Ukrainian that it, doesn't mean that it was acceptable in any way, shape or form for Russia to go in mil, mil, militarily but at least they had some kind of weird nationalist claim that they could make for doing so anyway go ahead Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's just essentially uniting people of a similar language, um, which apply, which was a, a terrible precedent to establish because it applies to a whole lot of places across the former Soviet Union and half a dozen other countries that have a diaspora that speak their, their language. It's a it's a bad it's a bad logic for military action so, to say nothing of the first invasion and annexation of sovereign Ukrainian territory since 1945. Nevertheless, uh, the crisis that we're dealing with now is very similar, was very similar, at least to one that we saw in April. Uh, 100,000 troops on the border, some mechanized infantry, some tanks, uh, mobile artillery, et cetera, scared the heck out of the West. And um, Joe Biden responded by providing Vladimir Putin with a bilateral summit. He was rewarded for this kind of brinkmanship. So why wouldn't we expect similar behavior to manifest now? Well, we're probably about a month now into a very similar buildup on the Ukrainian border and in Crimea. Uh, and Lots, drum beats sounding like this is actually going to happen. Intelligence leaking into public suggesting that an incursion is imminent. Um, and you can't dismiss the way that Western intelligence officials are talking about this threat because they are speaking in, in very uh, dis distinctly unnerving terms. Now, certain tripwires haven't yet been tripped. Um, the, you know, certain movements, certain uh, uh, assets in places that would suggest uh, an incursion is imminent. But nevertheless, people are talking about it and treating it like it's something that's very real. And the Biden administration's response so far has been limp-wristed, tepid, to the point that it couldn't possibly deter anybody. Uh, it has been the State Department and Tony Blinken uh, making noises about uh, protests before international councils, writing very stern letters. Joe Biden plans on having a uh, call with Vladimir Putin on the 7th. Um, the status quo on the ground could be very different. He's going to have a call. The there's going to be a call, Noah. Uh, yeah, it's and, a, and there's going to be there. That's that. That is you don't want to be on that phone call. And there will because be because wait, wait till he drops some corn pop wisdom <laughs> on on Vladimir Putin. <laughs> that's all I can say. He already Joe, did. He already did. did. Remember, he, he 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 appealed to Putin's sense of um, uh, wanting to belong and be esteemed in the world community. You know, people people were watching him. And, and if he didn't do the right thing, people wouldn't like him. Other countries wouldn't like him. Listen, we're very hard on the Biden administration for, and for good reason. But one area of geopolitics that I think they deserve a backpat for is their approach to uh, the Pacific. Um, they've been very aggressive towards China, more so than their predecessors. Uh, they've been trying to isolate Beijing in ways that their predecessors did not, including the Trump administration. And they moved assets into um, the Strait, Taiwan Strait, and in the South, uh, South China Sea in a way that deters aggression, because the only way to deter aggression is the credible threat of military force. We haven't seen those kind of de deployments yet that would actually deter uh, an adversary from making a mistake, because, you know, if in the event that you have a a military incursion, you have a lot of people very close to each other. It's dangerous because there can be a miscalculation. But that's why you don't move, because there's too much too many people in too small of a space. And I just briefly before I close, I wanted to 
say something about the um, new defense minister in the United Kingdom. Uh, or, I'm sorry, the new MI6 chief, Richard Moore, uh, who gave a big sprawling interview to uh, BBC where he talked about the real geostrategic threats that Britain is going to face in the next decade. And of course, China's at the top of the list. Next is Russia. Um, and he's very clear eyed about what these challenges could could mean to the Atlantic Alliance, including military action. One of the things that he said that was clear and something that we've kind of glossed over in our national conversation, we haven't here in this podcast, but others have, is the idea that this is all this is not all, but in part a response to the Biden administration's approach to Afghanistan. The Afghanistan withdrawal was clearly wrong. Mr. Moore said he added that. Um, the Taliban had uh, been a serious reverse to uh, the uh, status of the West in the world and, quote, a morale boost for extremists around the world and indeed for those sitting in capitals in Beijing, Tehran and Moscow. And we have seen more aggression, more brinkmanship, more um, more acting like they have a window of opportunity to move now that will be closing sooner rather than later from these revisionist and indeed irredentist uh, states like like Moscow. So we don't really talk about the extent to which the Biden administration has brought this on themselves with their craven uh, rush to the exits out of Afghanistan, but they very much have. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's, I think it would be almost impossible for any rational person not to look at the fact that um, they effectively stood down in the spring uh, with a new president in place whose behavior motives and uh, toughness they were not yet willing to challenge and then uh, find themselves uh, in the wake of August uh, sowing their oats, uh, just as China is, uh, you know, getting uh, apparently more aggressive uh, on the Taiwan question. Like how, how you know, th this is the thing, behavior uh, by, by, by the world's uh, greatest power um, has ancillary results and the ancillary result of saying we're going to bug out of a place that we uh, didn't really need to bug out of uh, and 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 pull in our you know pull in our wings and 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 uh, be an ostrich is um, okay well you know let's test this let's see how far we can go and you know what if if we keep moving and they don't do anything um, you know why can't we fulfill our I guess now 30 year old ambition uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union um, to make sure that Ukraine come returns uh, as a as a vassal state or, you know, at least very much within the ambit of our influence instead of being some a country that NATO is looking seriously at um, at bringing into the NATO alliance. And listen, we you know that the left and the nationalist right says, what what interest do we have there? We have no treaty that that compels us to guarantee Ukraine sovereignty. Yeah, kind of not actually. In 1994, we were parties to it. We were signatories to a, 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 a deal that allowed Ukraine to sacrifice and abandon all its nuclear weaponry that it inherited from the fall of the Soviet Union. It was the third largest nuclear power on the planet in 1992. And they sacrificed all those weapons and we guaranteed their territorial sovereignty in response. Now, we abrogated that deal to a certain degree in 2014, 20 years later. Um, but our allies are just as inclined to support Ukraine's territorial integrity, um, perhaps more so than we are, uh, to say nothing of the fact that a destabilized Europe and a tacit acceptance of the return of spheres of influence would functionally kill the, the globalized economy 
which has only existed since 1991. For the first time since 1914, we had a global economic uh, uh, marketplace and spheres, the return of spheres of influence would destroy that. So yes, we have a profound interest in that. Our allies have a profound interest in that. They would drag us into it. And if we were to abrogate our responsibilities in Europe so soon after we abandoned an ally in Kabul, it would destroy American credibility well beyond the Biden administration. No other administration would be able to restore it. It would be an American catastrophe, not, not a Biden catastrophe. Yeah, but you know, my grandfather said to me, Joey, always treat your neighbors the way you would want your neighbors to treat you. Someone should turn that so, into a rule. That should be made into some yeah, sort of I rule. just made that up, but you know he could say it. Like, I don't know, you know, it's... <laughs> A Joey, a stitch in time saves nine. Anyway, the reason I'm speaking so contemptuously is when you read some of these stories about the seriousness with which the Biden administration is taking the threat uh, on, on Ukraine, they're talking about things like, we're going to tell Russia that they can no longer participate in the swift international banking system. Like, I'm sure Vladimir Putin is shaking in his boots at, at, at the fact that, you know, their ability to do certain types of electronic transactions will be uh, interfered with. Like they don't have 10,000 ways to get around this, including shell companies all over the world that, that, that aren't, don't have, you know, dot RU concluding letters so that they can, they can, they can, work their will you know oh this is real do you you know about the um the soviet union's internet extension so as an art a relic of the uh the organizing body that you know did created .com.org and all these other country you know uh extensions the soviet union got one uh because they were just at the very tail end of this thing they got in right under the wire and the soviet union's internet extension is a hub of scum all manner of terrible people have websites with a .su extension on them, uh, dark web sort of things and racist outlets and all anything you can think of that's horrible is alive and well in the last surviving relic of the Soviet Union. I want to see. <laughs> I, need, it's I need a little, tour. It's don't don't do it. Don't I do need it. A tour. Where's the, where that, that that's listeners. That's you are going HBO. down a rabbit Where's hole the today. HBO Max documentary on this. <laughs> that, that, that's what I need. Anyway, uh, I hope everybody has a wonderful weekend um, and uh, and uh, happy rest of uh, Hanukkah to all who are who are who are lighting. Um, and for Abe, Christine, and Noah, I am John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.